0: Welcome to the Evergreen Review podcast. Your host is Dale Peck, writer, professor, and the editor-in-chief of the Evergreen Review.
1: I should start, of course, by welcoming you to the Evergreen Review podcast. My guest today is um, Yasmin Nair, and I see that she is avidly reading Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill. Busted! <laughs> Are, are, you, are you reading it for pleasure or to destroy it?
0: <laughs> so I've already done that on, on a podcast uh, called Ear uh, to the Pavement. It's uh, by Alison uh, Lirish-Dean. And, you know, we basically discussed that as part of a series we've been doing on Me Too. And it's a terrible book. It's basically fiction, which he presents as... Um, As as some sort of massive years-long journalistic expose, and it's really more about Ronan Farrow and his mummy, (laughs) Mia Farrow. It really is about reinstating the two of them as uh, crime victims in the whole Woody Allen scenario. I think that really is the throbbing heart of the book. It's a terrible book, and um, you know, encourage people to go listen to the podcast. I'll also be writing it up, but essentially, you know, it's a narrativizing of uh, things that, really, that he really didn't do. He's not a great journalist. Uh, he's, a good confa- he's a good fabulist more than a journalist. Uh, and well, it also speaks to the disaster of the Me Too movement, which is, a ho- which is, I think, like so many other social justice movements in today's uh, era, is a complete failure. Well, more or less a complete failure.
1: Um, and I, I think you, you, you will probably agree that it, it, it sort of fits into this larger narrative about um, uh, what would we say, the, the, the decline of, of uh, an independent um, uh, or truth-concerned um, media um, in the United States, um, in the world in general?
0: Yes, but I think this has been going on for a while, but I think the Trump election i think especially solidified this what we call the trump bump right um, I think most of media today is less bent on actually uncovering the very complex contours of any story and much more interested in performing a kind of uh, you know social justicey uh, story. And really, it, it is about a performing a story more than actually displaying what the story is really about. So if you were to actually look at the Me Too movement, you would come up with a very complicated picture that make, would make a lot of us uneasy, you know, about, for instance, the nature of sex and the fact that sex is transactional and that a lot of women... Have to constantly engage in tra- sexual transactions, as do many men, you know, in our everyday lives. For instance, right? Those are the ugly realities at the heart of everyday life. <laughs> um, but, but I think, um, just to, to use the Me Too story as an example, I think journalism today is more concerned with making sure that it doesn't get tweeted out of existence, right? So, New York Times, at one point, if you remember, right after 2016. Uh, published this really interesting essay about this neo-Nazi. It followed him around, did a really interesting analysis of how he became a Nazi, what his life is like, and got massively slaughtered on social media. How dare you show a Nazi as a human being, etc. And since then, it hasn't done anything like that, to the best of my knowledge. Um, so I think that's the, when you let yourself be ruled by social media, which is not nearly as influential as newspapers think it is, um, when you, but when you let yourself be overdetermined by social media, you have to let the journalism go.
1: Yeah, I, it, it seems to me that when you read a story virtually anywhere now, I mean, whether it's um, uh, in, in, you know, an ostensibly uh, independent um, objective publication like the Times or the Washington Post um, or a place with, with, you know, some type of, of, of revealed Um, uh, bias, whether it's, you know, um, uh, BuzzFeed or current affairs or, um, uh, you know, a few other places like that, you know, a place that hasn't announced some kind of announced agenda, Um, you know, straight through to to social media, you you rarely see people who are simply concerned with saying what's going on, what you see people, you know, articles um, concerned with producing a certain kind of reaction and usually a certain type of action. You know, you read this article knowing that the writer wants you to do X um, and typically X is vote for X candidate um, in an election or to endorse X policy or to declare oneself a friend or enemy, you know, of, of, of X phenomenon. But it's just, I can't think of the last time I read an article in which I was invited to, let alone allowed to make up my own mind as to as to whether I liked or disliked this thing um, uh, or had any other judgment on it. You know, the, the, uh, the idea that simply presenting it, you know, um, uh, objectively, um, as complicated as that might be, um, uh, it just seems to have gone out the window these days.
0: Right, and I think there's a place for, you know, sort of op- opinion-led, coverage and opinion-led journalism. There's a place for that. And then there's a place for the different kind of journalism that says, we've gone out into the field. Here are the facts we uncovered. Make up your minds. And here are more facts we uncover. And as the picture gets complicated, we keep bringing you those facts. I think there's a place for both of that. I think what's happened is what you're pointing to, which is that I think journalism of the sort that The Times claims to represent um, has just become more of the second sort, you know, uh, the times it looks, I mean, also the time, you know, when I look at the times, I, I know I keep beating up on the times, but, it, you know, I get the times all a, because it's very cheap. Um, they're willing to give you very cheap subscriptions because it just wants subscribers, <laughs> but also be because, you know, everyone, you know, as, as a journalist and as a writer, yada, yada, you, know, you got to keep up with what people are talking about. And a lot of times people unfortunately are talking about what's, what's been written in the times. And, you know, so I have the app and it's always reads like it, it, it's, it's all about algorithms. It's not about, I just want to, I will say, for instance, the LA times every morning gives me a PDF of its paper. Mm-hmm. I can actually go through and see the news as the LA Times reported it, Mm -hmm. right? Which is very honest. Whereas the New York Times is led entirely by algorithms. Mm -hmm. You don't get, even the today's paper section, which is completely messy. Um, The the stories keep going up and down based on the algorithm, what's Mm -hmm. popular. So I'm not really getting a snapshot of what happened, for instance, yesterday, which is what the newspaper today would be covering. I'm getting a sense of what other people are reading.
1: Great right. I mean, and that's you know even true on The Times' front page on the web you know oh. itself there are there are essentially four different sections that are all the same sections, which is the stories that the most people are reading that we're going to keep on you know pumping because more eyes means more advertising dollars uh for those pieces um, uh and for the paper in general um so as as readers, as writers, um, as as e- editors, I, I, I refer to myself that in, in large quotation marks. Um, uh, what are what are our responses to you know the, this this idea that that um, you know the news seems to be you know being presented you know entirely to sort of you know reinforce um, certain uh, assumptions that we already hold uh, to cater to readers, you know, prejudices, um, be they left or right, um, you know, all for the sake of pointing viewers towards a select few articles, you know, to rake in advertising dollars. How do we respond to that?
0: As editors and writers, I think we need to be more conscious about communicating to readers that there is such a thing as genre. So Evergreen Review, as you know, right? A beautiful, may I just say, beautiful, historic, storied publication. Evergreen Review is not a news journalism entity. It is a literary magazine. And as a literary magazine, it has, you know, it often writes about things that are in the news with a, a particular literary band, but it's not a journalism place. Right. And that's fine. And that is exactly, it serves a function. The New York Times, it has to, you know, it's supposed to be, your local paper is supposed to report the news and it's supposed to report the news. Um, but I think readers have lost any sense of the distinctions between genre. So a reader very often, for instance, will write to me and say, you know, if I've written, for instance, a review of a book, they'll start, they'll want to know, well, you write about this particular historical uh, event, but what about the 1865 Battle of Coimbatore, which surely had profound influences upon the events? I'm like, motherfucker, I'm not writing a history paper. <laughs> you know? So people have no sense anymore. Whereas I think quote unquote, in the olden days, when we all had to deal with uh, with print entities and they came into a you know. We knew, okay, I'm reading in my, in my youth, in my childhood, I would, I would read, for instance, Stardust, which was this glorious, still is, this glorious um, film magazine in India. Gossip, total gossip. Uh, and then we would also get The Statesman, which was a historic, you know, many, you know, a couple of hundred years old, I think, uh, newspaper, one of the oldest newspapers in India. Um, and then we would have The Telegraph, which was the younger cousin to The Statesman, which only started in the 80s. And those were both newspapers that did reporting, but with very particular kinds of you know politics. It's sort of like in Britain, everyone knows, for instance, that you know this paper has a particular political bent. This paper has this particular political bent, right? And then you would get your weeklies, you would get your comic, you know. So, but you knew genre automatically. You sort of internalized what genre was, and I think people have no sense of that. That's one problem, and I think that as editors and as and as writers, we, I don't know what the actual answer is, um, but I think we have to start communicating to people. Perhaps one simple way is just to even out, is just to say, state what a piece is at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, say op-ed as they do in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Actually in the New York Times, they should be saying that on some of the news stories. Mm-hmm. But you know, just say op-ed or opinion analysis, right? Or news analysis. News analysis is very different from a reporting piece, for instance. So mm-hmm. I think that's one thing. I think readers, quite frankly, we are very soft on readers. I think writers and editors are very soft on readers for good reason, right? We're terrified they'll leave us. Um, it's a little bit like being in a really bad relationship. You just don't want to criticize them. Please don't leave me, (laughs) but I think we need to be, frankly, we just need to start putting the onus on readers as well in some way we really need to start looking at the readers and saying, listen, if you want, for instance, if you want us to tell you what is happening in the most complex ways, you need to fucking pay us. And you need to let us do it behind a paywall, for instance. Mm-hmm. If that is what it takes, right? Stop filching stuff and pretending that you're some sort of Robin Hood, you know, giving away articles for free. Uh, pay for shit. You know, I, I have a subscription to the Financial Times. Uh, because quite frankly, I actually think that the Financial Times at this moment in time provides the best journalism out there. You know what's happening in the world if you know what's going on with global capital. And no one else does it better than the Financial Times. The New York Times sucks because the New York Times is entirely invested in its literal investments. And that's what it reports on, right? But I think, you know, and the time, the FT allows me, I think, to share a few articles every now and then. or It has a quota. And I, that's, that's what I hear too. I don't liberate articles and share them on my feed for instance because it takes money to do actual reporting it takes money and qualifications heaven forbid it takes time for us to write pieces we also haven't done a very good job of communicating to readers what the job of writing is because so many fucking writers are assholes who want to think of themselves as special snowflakes a lot of writers i know are more are really invested in communicating to the public the idea that what they do is special and a craft that is just mysterious there's nothing mysterious about it you sit your ass down in your seat and you fucking turn that piece out and it takes goddamn hours and then it takes hours to revise and the meantime your editor as you know your editors you know banging on the door going where the hell i mean it's 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 mundane and it's you know it's fraught and it's you know it's it is there's a certain magic involved but the magic only comes at the very end (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, no, I, I, you know, you you have this feeling now that people think that because of social media, because we have Twitter, because all of our cameras have phones on them or something, that we can simply allow the truth to percolate out that eyewitnesses are going to report things, um, you know, uh, in in an honest way, um, in an unedited way, um, that it's truth. And that also that somehow, you know, viewers are going to be able to assimilate you know, the the entirety of a situation based on six different, you know, videos and a couple of tweets that were reported by people who may or may not have been there, you know, there's no way to actually verify it, especially when when you're just dealing with, with print, you know, um, as opposed to a writer, you know, who is publishing things in a situation where, you know, among other things, you know, their ass is on the line. You know, if you print misinformation, you and or your publication can get sued and all that, which is an incentive um, to actually tell the truth about things. Whereas people who randomly upload things on social media, you know, can kind of just hide behind, uh, you know, just well, it's just, you know, this is just what my camera had or just disappear somewhere into the ether. I want to back up just 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 a little bit. Um. Uh, you know, I was uh, glancing um, uh, at your presence on, on online this morning and I came across a, a quote that I'd seen somewhere before, which is, you know, um, uh, Yasmin Nair is one of those persons um, uh, that you might not have heard of her, but if you've heard of her, you definitely have an opinion about her. Um, uh, you are a person who takes very strong stands on, on various things, but I want to start kind of super globally. You know, how do you describe yourself professionally? You are a writer, but you know that's a very broad category. Kitty O'Meara, after all, is a writer. Um, uh, your your favorite poet, if you remember her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes.
0: The poet of the pandemic.
1: Poet of the pandemic. <laughs> poet of the so
0: people. right. So you know, um, I actually like writer, and here's why. I think I'm okay with being. Seen as being on the same plane as Kitty O'Mara simply because any, I, I do feel that you're a writer if you sit down and you work on crafting something and you know that poem was ghastly whatever that thing was that crow's entity right which went viral and which people can read a little bit off in in the piece we published in, on the pandemic in evergreen review shameless i think that if you sit down and you regardless of what your politics are regardless of what is considered the skill level because who decides skill as well well i mean i guess there is Something to be said about you know, a, a neutral definition of skill, perhaps. But you know, if you've sat down and you've produced something that you actually set your mind to and you wanted to present it as a piece of writing, right? As a, as a compilation of words that are meant to convey something that you wish to convey, I think you're a writer. You know, which is why I like to say I'm a writer. Um, and I'm also, but I'm in this weird position where my writing and my political activism and you know, all of that and my take on it is have become inextricably intertwined over the years. So I'm a very particular kind of writer, but I'm also not, so my writing obviously has a particular politics, um, but I'm also not tethered to writing only about certain topics which is why you know i like what i like about saying that i'm a writer is it gives me the freedom to say i can write on shit one day as i did um you know for the all years ago before the all disappeared mostly what i write about i would say is i write about the archaeology and the history of power Mm -hmm. that's what i do i think I was sitting down today because you asked me to con, you know, think about my writing, especially for my writing for Evergreen Review and to think about what it is. And I realized in terms of, I think globally, what I do is I write and I love writing about the history and archaeology of pub. Because I think going to what you said just now about, you know, people who think that watching images uploaded instantly is suddenly, t- suddenly tells you everything they need to know about an event, Right. When in fact a writer like me and many others, right? What we do is we say this particular moment, like this brutal murder of a black man by a white cop, as you know, what happened yesterday, and then linked up to um, you know the, the incident in Central Park, right? All of those things have an archaeology; they have a history, right? It's this doesn't happen. And all, it's, it's not just that these events repeat themselves day after day, year after year, but that the repetition is overdetermined by a very long history of how black bodies are cast as criminal. And I think when we, as writers, can provide those archaeologies of power and you know and of race, right, we can show people that it's not enough to simply be outraged in the moment, because if you simply show outrage for everything that happens and will happen again tomorrow and is probably happening today as we speak. If you don't understand the history of that, you don't know how to demolish the systems that created it because you're already participating in those histories. And in fact, the very, history, the, the very acting out of liberal outrage is actually a part of the same genocidal system that creates these moments as they happen, right? Liberal outrage is part of that horrible system, which is why so much of my work is also about, as you know, you know, it's also about saying, fuck love, basically, right? It's, it's I'm constantly against the discourse of love in activism, uh, the way it's understood. So I guess, I don't know if that, does that answer your question? A, I'm a writer. And this is what I write about, I guess.
1: (laughs) Okay, Um, in the first piece that you did for Evergreen Review, A Manifesto, um, you refer to um, what you call the deep void of blandness that we, by which I assume you mean Americans and and Westerners in general, mistake for politics. Um, And you go on to say, the tragedy of our time is that our solutions to such matters are increasingly tied, not to what we might do, but to what kind of people we might become and whether or not those who suffer at the hands of state are good people deserving of our compassion or criminals Rapists, terrorists, enemies who must be walled off in cages um, or across borders. I, I, I want to go into that statement because um, I, I don't think that that that, that there's any problem uh, in, in in your discourse. But but it it sort of you know it, it, it straddles two different lines that you're very interested in because on the one hand you are very concerned with the ways in which um, identity um, uh, is actioned um, or turned into a cause for oppression, um, and on the other hand you're very concerned with the way in which um identity and particularly sort of you know our conceptions of who we are are used as excuses for not evaluating our own actions which is to say that if we conceive of ourselves as good liberals then then it is impossible that any action that we perform you know might not be might not be a good action you know and so you know we can whatever you know support Um, uh, you know criminal capitalist enterprise or exploitative enterprises or something like that but if we think of ourselves as liberals those those consequences must not actually be happening because we we have created this identity of ourself um, as a good person or as an oppressed person rather than an oppressor or um, uh, you know someone you know uh, on on the other side.
0: So I would say first of all that it's not only liberals but also many leftists. Oh yes. Uh, Right so I just and I know you know that but I just wanted to emphasize that for our listeners as well, is that the problem is not only with liberals per se, but also with a a large swath of leftists. Um, The thing about identity is that it's a terrible idea when it becomes a way to you know grandly bestow rights upon the people who you think you know should have rights right so for that reason a lot of for instance uh, discourse around immigration rights is terribly flawed because it depends so much upon the identity of the deportee or the immigrant as a good solid citizen who's contributing and whose children will all go to yale and become doctors uh, or lawyers etc right so Identity is a problem in that sense because they use it to define who should or should not get uh, basic rights. So that's a problem. Identity is in that way is a problem. But at the same time, the, there's a part of the left that then is critical of what it calls identity politics, but it does that from an extraordinarily racist point of view. So even in the manifesto, I point to you know the people I particularly was thinking about were people like, Jody Dean and Doug Henwood and you know several people on the Nick Hill thing you know several people on the left who, ha- especially in you know following 2016, denounced quote unquote identity politics uh, because they said that's the problem you know we sp- we spend so much time thinking about people's identities and we forgot that as the white working class you know who who um, whom we needed to well, frankly, cater to. They didn't use that word, but they said, we did not serve the needs of the white working class, and they're the ones who voted for Trump, et cetera. So the thing about identity in that sense, you know, this quote-unquote critique of identity politics ignores the fact that whiteness is an identity, first of all, right? That's a profoundly, I think, important thing to keep in mind. And the other issue here is that we forget that people who live within, encased within their identities that are always marked as such, like the man who is an avid bird watcher, one identity, and also a black man, another identity, walking in Central Park who simply asked a white Karen, yeah. right, you know, leash your dog, that's all he asked, right? But that man is encased in his particular identity, which allows her to invoke her identity, really. Her identity is, is supposedly blank, It's supposedly non-existent simply because she's a white woman. But she is completely, again, you see, this is where the history and archaeology of power comes into place, right? There's a long history of white women who have been able to deploy their identity as women and as white women constantly under threat by lascivious and violent black men. That's the history of that moment. When I watch that video, that is the long ass history I see. I see that long history coming into play, right? So that man is encased in his identity she's encased in his but his identity is exactly what constantly places him constantly every day every minute under threat you know he had i think he said this to one of the news outlets or several of them that he's spoken to he said i'm so tired what he basically said was and i'm badly paraphrasing his words. he said i'm so tired of this shit <laughs> he didn't put it that he said i'm so tired of this and i'm not going to put up with it any longer and I'm going to strike back by simply asking, you know, by being very firm and by recording people as they do this thing. But that's his identity, right? That is constant surveillance to the extent where he now has to be always be aware that he should have his phone around with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was in a, at a Zoom birthday party with a friend the other day. And one of her friends or cousins is, is this young black guy who is now in Colorado. He, was, he moved there from New York. A couple of months ago to be with his parents who live in Colorado and he was saying that his parents won't let him he said they basically said to him you can go into the front yard and you can go into the backyard and if you go out for a run you take your phone with you you let us know where you are every 15 minutes this is the fucking situation right this is what it means to be a young black man now running in America so you can be critical of identity politics all you want but you also have to understand that for a lot of people their identity is what fractures and encapsulates their lives on a day and how do you reconcile that with the fact that yes you know relying on identity narratives is problematic that identity is kind of a tool of neoliberalism etc and the left hasn't really figured that out at all it becomes problematic because very simply because the left forgets that such a thing as racism exists and that racism <laughs> right I mean, I mean, someone like, oh, uh, okay, Adolf Reed, whose work I otherwise really do admire in many ways, right? African Americans, um, lefty writer, you know, and because the left has Adolf Reed, will often say, well, it matters, but it doesn't matter as much. And I would say, no, it matters a lot. Uh, it matters tremendously. I mean, it. Ma- I... When I walk out of my house in Hyde Park, which is a majority African-American uh, neighborhood, I'm constantly aware of where I am. I'm constantly mm, very, I, I, I'm, I'm very prickly in a way, and I'm very conscious at any minute that some, someone could pull some shit on me. And it could be tiny quotidian things like, you know how the clerk treats me at, the Whole Foods counter, you know, and the clerk might be black, right? But just the ways in which race, I think the left does not really understand the force of race uh, and racism. I don't think the left really understands what racism is. It keeps trying to explain it away as a material effect of other structural issues, you know. And if we get rid of capitalist exploitation, we'll get rid of racism that's not going to happen very soon you know that because again we have a long embedded history of how someone's okay so to give you an example again if the left doesn't understand racism it doesn't understand the housing crisis so for instance i have a critique certainly of the idea of home ownership right i have a huge critique of it because i think it's really weird that we should you know, that our lives should depend on, do we own or do you rent? In other words, are you in debt or are you not? I think that's a ridiculous uh, formulation. At the same time, I fully understand why for many African-Americans in particular, you know, ownership, right? Again, historically, given the situation, historically, but also in the present time, within capitalism, home ownership is an issue, is a thing. At the same time, I also understand that, consequently, it is why something like 2008 happens, right, the housing crisis hits, the first people to be affected most starkly are African Americans, whose stakes in their homes are suddenly divested because of a banking enterprise that has been rapacious towards them, that gave it all sorts of loans, etc., in the hope of inducing them to buy but they were the first ones to lose everything they had. And the same is true, look at any natural or economic disaster, you know, whether it's Katrina, whether it's the coronavirus right now, right? There's a reason why African-Americans and Latinx people are the ones most severely hit. It's not only that they have resources that they lack at this moment, but that there's been a long history of lack of access, right? So there's a long history. A friend of mine was telling me about his, in, in a week or so, I think his uncle and his, you know, his two uncles he lost at least a couple of, um, of uh, family members to Corona. And he said, you know, it's not just coronavirus, it's years of hypertension, it's years of attrition on your body. The racism has an effect on your body in many different ways. And the, rest, and the left doesn't understand the many different ways. So there's the effect that you can't get to hospitals and be treated well. I am terrified of having to go to a hospital in this country. I'm bloody terrified because I have no idea what's gonna to happen to my body. I've had to go to the hospital sometimes for very minor issues, and even there I've been you know, neglected, left to you know, all of that. So I have, I'm terrified, right? Now, if you're an African American male, you've had years of hypertension, you've had years of stress, you've had years of inadequate healthcare, right? So it's not, you know, the coronavirus makes things much more explosively bad, which is why so many people from those communities are dying much more you know, quickly. The left can't really grasp that, you know, that racism is, so yes, is is race a construct? Yes, sure. But people are also living through that construct. Like it or not, I've been placed in this construct. And I have to deal with things on a bodily level. I I think the way I would say it is that the left doesn't get bodies anywhere, right? The left doesn't get sex, it doesn't get race, it doesn't get gender. It wants to act like, you know, we're all these, um immaterial entities uh floating around and but those uh, materialities are visceral visceral ways for us to live through
1: where where is the disconnect be, between sort of paying you know lip service to the idea that 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 people have different lived experiences based on you know gender race um uh, various other um uh, essentialist attributes um uh, of their lives even if those essentialized attributes are themselves, you know, um, uh, social constructions or or socially inflected in, in, in some way. You know, why don't we get it?
0: We don't get it because we've come up with a set of solutions that are extraordinarily flawed, but which give a surface impression of having succeeded. And I would say that the best uh, example of that is that, especially on the left, we depend on the nonprofit industrial complex, for instance, to do all our work, right? So that's, I think we don't get the disconnect because we have so many institutions that paper over our problems. So with immigration, for instance, you know, immigration in this country, whatever is considered immigration work or reform is taken up. There are lots of small, I should say, I should add that there are lots of small activist organisms (laughs) that are trying to do really interesting radical work. Um, But for the most part, the immigration agenda in this country, right, which is seen as a left agenda now, uh, is taken up by I- institutions like uh, ICIRRR in, in Chicago, which is the largest immigration organization in the country. It's the Imm- Illinois Immigrant Rights and Refugees Coalition. And its work is absolute crap. I know this for a fact because I, you know, in the past, I used to send friends of mine to either to ISIR or to other organizations like them, much smaller organizations, which are all, by the way, over determined by ISIR because ISIR has all the power. Um, but, you know, I would send friends to them when they needed help with immigration and they were always turned away because they were not part of families or they were not the good enough immigrants and so on. So... But when you look at rallies on immigration, when you look at who's setting the agenda on immigration, for instance, is these massive organizations that would disappear if we actually took care of immigration. So we've created, and you look at anything else, look at queer issues, right? Look at what the gay marriage movement did to us. It basically, for one thing I would argue, and I will argue, is that it decimated the possibility of universal health care. Long before it was even a considered a possibility in recent years, right? So if you look at any social justice movement that's sort of lefty, you realize that it's the nonprofits that came in and created a particular agenda that looks like a left agenda on the surface. Um, and that's the disconnect, right? The disconnect is that and it's you know, we have invested so much literally, in these organizations, in these structures that are only now existing in order to keep themselves alive and not actually resolve the issues.
1: In, in a manifesto, um, uh, you uh, describe, you, you characterize neoliberalism as capitalism made familiar. Um, uh, and you go on at at, at some length about how it's sort of you know w- one of the drives of neoliberalism uh is 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 to present uh capitalist in- institutions as your friend um and and to normalize the idea you know of of of, of havers and takers um, uh of, of haves and have nots um uh, and, and all that do you think this plays a role um in 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 uh the american left's uh sort of failure to to to, to look beyond um uh its feelings about identity rather than to the actual lived experience of identity
0: yes and the left likes to ignore its feelings (laughs) Um, much to its own cost and what i mean by that i think
1: they like to i think the left likes to talk about its feelings without acknowledging what its feelings really are Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) right exactly yeah so with neoliberalism as you know you know there have been many and very good uh uh, definitions and analysis, and by you know just to sort of just to make sure we 're all on the same page in terms of what the listeners are wondering about in terms of what is neoliberalism yeah it's it 's a system of privatization of resources that 's been in place uh since you know some people trace it to around the seventies, I would argue that might even have been a little earlier than that, and others have argued that as well, but basically it 's a system of privatization such that now increasingly everything that is essential for instance education water in many parts of the world housing all of those have become privatized entities so we are no longer guaranteed rights under the state for instance which is why for instance even in the you know even in the uk the national health service which is its sort of crowning uh jewel not india but the nhs is the crown is is the jewel in the crown um that's being decimated, uh, even as Boris Johnson was kept alive by the NHS. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like, hey, Boris, <laughs> got anything to say about the NHS now? Eh? <laughs> I guess herd immunity didn't do you any good. But anyway, um, but you know, so that's neoliberalism, which is the privatization of resources. And there's been lots of excellent, fantastic left analysis of how that has come about. Uh, you know, and Naomi Klein and others, you know, have very good, uh, excellent work on all of that. But what I think the left does not understand and why it's always so perplexed as to why neoliberalism keeps going on is because it doesn't understand that neoliberalism also gives you a sense of intimacy. It gives you a sense that what it's doing for you is based on your desires. So I, one of the examples I gave was, um, was when there was a new Chase Bank in my neighborhood in Uptown. And while it was renovating the interior of this building that it had taken over from a glorious laundromat called the Queen's Basket, (laughs) while it was renovating the interior, it put up these posters on outside. And and it was all about, you know, obey your neighbors and just come in and chat and we're here for you. Of course, hiding the fact that it has exorbitant fees, um, hiding the fact that it's Terrible to its its, and I I know this because I had a banking account with them briefly, and I was treated like shit because all I had at any given time was maybe a couple of hundred dollars, and they treated me like shit. But I knew from people who had a lot more money in Chase that they were being given you know the red carpet treatment, right? So it ignores, of course, you know, it hides all of that, but makes it seem like it's your neighborhood bank, right? And that discourse is really important to everything. It's important, for instance, to education, right? So education, the reason that a lot of people, maybe not so much now, but in the very beginning, a lot of people were invested in charter schools, especially people in, quote unquote, minority communities, because they were told, if you really love your child, you will want to take your child out of these disgusting public institutions and put them in these nice charter schools where we give you a fantastic education. And that strikes at the heart of what people want and need. It's an intimacy there, right? There's an intimacy there. Um, so I think neoliberalism, what people on the left have tended to ignore, because again, as you said, you know, they either don't have feelings or they don't, they don't know what their feelings are. You know, the left doesn't understand pleasure either, right? So, and it doesn't understand the fact that some of us need conveniences more than, you know, might be afforded by the general system, so the left has this huge critique of Uber and Lyft, for instance, you know, and that's fine. You know, I'm constantly being berated by lefties who 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 criticize me for taking those, you know, taking the Lyft, but I live on the South Side of Chicago. There's no cab that's gonna come and take, pick me up. Mm-hmm. Cabs don't even come here, right? So the point of all of that is that our lives are structured by very intimate, real needs and desires, right? I love shopping for perfume or, you know, I love shopping for soaps and so on. And there's a need for pleasure in our lives. Even those of us who have very little money and neoliberalism often steps in, in the shape of, for instance, a Marshalls. <laughs> Where I can find an entire half store <laughs> filled with lovely soaps and perfumes. Right. Is it a bad, is it born out of a bad system? Is it a horrible corporate chain? Yeah, sure. But it gives me pleasure for fuck's sake, right? The mom and pop store down the street, you know, with the guy who keeps following me around doesn't.
1: You talk about how there's a kind of an unstated fantasy on the, on the part of a left, the left policy, uh, a, a, a lot of left policies, and I think this is probably particularly resonant um, uh, vis-a-vis the Me Too movement, um, that, that, it's, that, that there's a future possible um, in which essentially there's no unconscious. Um, uh, you know uh, that 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 all of our desires are absolutely kind of communicable, um, uh, communicatable, one should say, in this age of disease, um, communicatable to to everyone else, so that there's no you know there's nothing left out, there are no misunderstandings or something like that. You know, as as, as though you know the transaction will exist on this perfect one-to-one correspondence. Uh,
0: we have scrubbed ourselves clean of the unconscious. I think is what I said. Um, desire is something, for instance, that's ignored by those of us on the left, right? The, and again, desire goes back to why neoliberalism has such an advantage, um, because it knows how to capitalize on my desire. Um, so desire, yes. And also, wh- whether it is about racial discrimination or whether it's about looking at the housing yeah. crisis, we have this idea that if I simply articulate the idea that it is wrong, Somehow that will make it either disappear or it will make it appear wrong to everyone else. What we don't get is that racism, for instance, in Chicago is, you know, if you look at the unconscious of Chicago, right? And I live in Hyde Park, which is like the hotbed of the unconscious of racism in Chicago. If you look at the history of racism in Chicago, it's not, you know, white people oppressing black people alone, which of course is the case. But in Hyde Park, there's a massive collusion between the Black middle class, Black upper, upper and middle class, and the white-dominated University of Chicago. You know The famous thing about, I think it was Mike Nichols who said about Hyde Park Chicago, that this is where Black and white unite against the poor. Now, if you're someone on the left who wants you know, to talk about anti-racism and racism in, you know, in Chicago and all of that, you ignore that unconscious which again is about the history and archeology span of power, right? You ignore that unconscious and you keep repeating, you know, insanity, right? The definition of insanity is you keep doing the same damn thing over and over again and you keep doing this thing where you're like, we'll gather people and we'll protest and we'll talk about racism and everybody needs to end racism. And then you quietly ignore the fact that a lot of these stupid, you know, these ghastly um, nonprofit entities, for instance, are, Person sure by African-Americans or Asians or white people, but they're all implicated in horrific practices around race, which have nothing to do with anything but diversity, right? Empty diversity, but they're also invested perhaps in, for instance, supporting the Obama foundation mm-hmm. and this pillaging of this neighborhood. Right? So, so when you ignore the unconscious uh, of something like race and racism, you ignore how it keeps moving forward. It, it, it's a little beasts just directing us in different ways. The unconscious of racism is why in Chicago we, today, we have a black lesbian mayor, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? History was made. We have a black lesbian mayor who's police for, who has basically directed things in such a way that the cops in this city have only, it, arrested so far. I've only arrested people for violating social distancing norms on the South and West sides, which are mostly Latinx and African-American. Every single arrest made, 100% of of the arrests made so far are of Black people.
1: It's amazing.
0: That is what I mean when I say we have to think about our unconscious. Because on the conscious level, la, 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 (laughs) we've got, yay, we've got a lesbian black mayor and she's so cool and she's so hip and she has, you know, she's fabulous and wonderful and so gay. Um, And she's got her lips planted on the asses of white people who run this city, especially on the asses of white gay men who run this city. A little known secret about Chicago, by the way.
1: (laughs) You mentioned this in passing in a manifesto. Um, uh, So... I'm going to preface this this question a little bit by by, by talking about my own experience. Um, about 15 years ago, I published a book called Hatchet Jobs, um, which was uh, uh, entirely a book of uh, uh, well, there was one one uh, exception, but it, uh, other, it was essentially billed as as a book of negative book reviews. Um, me kind of taking on what I saw as two reactionary forces. Um, uh, in in the literary world, one I called reactionary realism, which was just kind of this return to this idea that there's a standard that everything you know can can adhere to, and then the other was this sort of recidivist postmodernism, which was this idea that nothing matters and you know it's all just a game or something like that. Both of which I found to be essentially conservative. Um, uh, one of the responses to that from people who attempted to engage with, with the book um, as opposed to people who simply rejected it out of hand was to say, okay, we know what you don't like, you know, please tell us what you do like. Um, I evaded that question by, by, by saying that, you know, you know, in, in literature, what I don't like is a program. You know, what I want is for people to make conscious choices rather than to sign on to something and just regurgitate particularly, you know, tired systems without evaluating them. <clears throat> Now you've said you know that your work is primarily concerned with the history and archaeology of power, you know, which which is necessarily a past-looking um, uh, sort of practice. Um, uh, a, a, as well, and you know, I think that it, you know, it's it's clear, you know, to anyone who reads your work that you know, a, a large portion of it um, is is concerned with the sort of deconstruction um, or revelation of of systems uh, that exist that we either choose to ignore or perhaps you know simply aren't, aren't aren't capable of noticing you know in our daily lives because we're subsumed in the minutia of just surviving you know. So I'm going to ask that question you know that 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 people uh, ask all the time, which is you know you know. Okay, so so you know we, we spent a lot of our energy you know analyzing the, the problem, pointing out the problem, etc. You know, what are what are some forward steps that we mm-hmm. can take? What, what are what are what are things that we can actually do beyond pointing out that the problem I, I exists? Um, mm-hmm. And I ask that knowing that that kind of smacks of the type of utopianism um, uh, that that you also take a moment to decry um, uh, in I believe in a manifesto. You know, but you know. Yes, I think you know we, we live in a world where capitalism, neoliberal, you know, capitalism runs the show, and so you know much of our energy is simply you know uh, subsumed in being vigilant, you know, to, to, to these things. But 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 how do you move past simply being on guard all the time? You know, like what what are positive steps you take to make the world a better place? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, I know what you mean about those sorts of responses. In my work, it's often, well, what's your solution? Um, Well, first of all, what I would say to that, I think, is a a version of what you said about in terms of your responses to your critics, which is to say that, first of all, an analysis of the problem alone has been so damn difficult to make that we still have to keep at that. We have to keep pointing out what the problem is. Um, So that, I think, still remains an important part of the project of Utopia, which I actually believe in. I actually believe in Utopia. I mean, I'm very fond of Star Trek The Next Generation for that reason because I love it. It's a utopia without money, for instance. I I, I believe in utopias. I believe that utopias are possible. I believe there are also multiple utopias. Um, But I think that in terms of what is it that we should do, I think that what we have to do is actually in itself perhaps a difficult undertaking, but not impossible. I think we have to think about, for instance, looking to support institutions and organizations that are actually doing the very difficult work that takes time, right? So we have to, first of all, understand that the work that lies ahead is work that's going to take a lot of time. And if I may, I'm just going to give a shout out to one of my favorite organizations is Chicago Freedom School. And it's, a small organization and what it does is it it sort of works with youth from around I think um, as young as I think 11 to about high school graduating age so they will actually work with someone through the course of those years and the idea is to build on principles of well utopian freedom actually you know and to, so they have classes they have um, you know They have out, they have, they have a whole range of essentially a freedom school, right, education, which is, which runs parallel to the education that they're getting in their quote unquote regular school and which also supplements things like lunches and so on. So it's an amazing organization. But here's the thing, and it's doing fun, but it could do a lot better if people would give more money because a lot of times people look at something like that and they don't see young black youth in the streets taking up protest signs right they don't see that what they look at something and they say well this takes eight years that's so long and they don't understand that this project has to be very careful about how it works with these youth in very different forms as they grow you know it's a long project in other words right and that is what I think has to fundamentally change. We have to change our idea of how change happens. We have to understand that change can happen, for instance, incrementally, and it can happen in ways that we don't understand. So to give you one example, when Occupy happened, I was covering it for, um, for Windy City Times. And at the time I was, and I still am, and I think many of us are, critical of Occupy for many reasons, right? one thing, a lot of people I think felt shafted by the system and they were angry that the system didn't work for them. They weren't angry that the system existed, right? So, et etc., et cetera. But the point is, Occupy did plant certain seeds and there were people who went to Occupy or their cousins went to Occupy, whatever it is. It took a long time, but a lot of what we see today in terms of, for instance, quote unquote, socialist awareness, does have its roots in what people who may not even have been particularly, you know, who may have been very, very young, may even have been children at the time. It a lot of what was planted there made for what we see today in terms of at least a rudimentary socialist awakening of sorts, you know. I think that Americans in particular are really bad at history. And they're really bad at understanding how things actually work over a course of time because everything is contracted so much. You know, we see time in 24-hour blips. Most of us do. Uh, And we also think of change as something that needs to happen right now. Why didn't it happen? Why didn't it happen? Oh, it hasn't changed? Well, I give up. Um, So I think. On the left, for us, we have a lot of ideological rethinking to do. We have a lot of rethinking to so if you think about what happened with Bernie Sanders and all of that in this this just this year alone, you know, it's easy to just walk away and say, well, obviously it doesn't matter. And I'm saying this is not a huge fan of Bernie or anyone else, and I'm not even a huge fan of electoral politics. But these things do matter. But we have to have a programmatic sense of how change occurs and that it 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 only occurs if you keep working at change and if you keep working and you keep thinking through, well, what worked and didn't work, right? So what didn't work, I think, with Bernie Sanders is his complete forgetting that Black people mattered. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just not going to go to those states. <laughs> you know, they did fantastic work in in um, in Las Vegas, uh, in 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 Nevada. They did amazing work in Nevada, and then they failed to replicate it anywhere else, right? Um, so, but again, um, to think programmatically, to change the ways in which we think about politics, um, that matters. And I think that we also have to start thinking about building institutions that are actually invested in long-term change and not in issues. Mm -hmm. That is the other problem. I think for instance that immigration is entirely focused right now on issues detention camps, which, by the way, have existed for a long time. (laughs) Or, you know, the issue of private prisons. And private prisons are not the problem, actually. Private prisons are maybe 8% of the larger uh, prison um, industrial complex and so on. We're really concerned with, like, minute issues. but We're not concerned with actual change, right? Um, We're concerned with gay marriage, but we fail to notice that The gay population, you know, the gay movement is a shitty movement that's invested in neoliberalism. Why does HRC exist? Um, And so I think that it requires a lot of rethinking. And I think that's really difficult for people to grasp or even want to grasp because everyone wants to say, well, you know, what's my fight for Tibet? When I was 20 years or even younger, I wanted to go fight for Tibet. I have no fucking idea what I meant by that. I'm not even sure I understood the history of Tibet, but to, you know, an upper class, bougie young girl in India, (laughs) enjoying the comforts of her world and wanting to do something that was radically different. I wanted to fight for Tibet, whatever. Right. So I think we've all got our fights for Tibet going on and, uh, That seems attainable, but I think we really, and also we have to consider that this work is also really hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's extraordinarily difficult. It has to do with working with people, not just texting them, you know. So, I mean, I could go on, but.
1: You know, I I think that um, so many people on the left have a hard time recognizing that, that that they're not just doing these things for themselves and for the way that they feel about it, you know, but, but that, that you are doing this for other people. It's essentially you know, it's like the mask controversy, you know, among you know, uh, the Trump supporters and the coronavirus deniers, you know, people I, I just got, in, I just went off on a cousin of mine, you know, who posted you know, this thing about how masks don't work, they don't protect you from the coronavirus and all that and I'm like, it's not about protecting you, it's about protecting other people, you know, and, and, and all that. And his, and his response was to say that masks don't protect you. Like, you just could not get past, you know, this idea. You know, if you have the mask on, it must be about, you know, um, yourself and, and not about other people. Um, and I think that's, that's such an American conception of politics. Yes. And so when I don't realize an immediate benefit for, from some pet political project that I've been working on for X number of days, you know, months or years, then I give up on it. You know, never... Even caring whether or not it's working for someone else out there in the world, or you know that the person that it might benefit, you know, hasn't been born yet, for example.
0: And I think that brings me exactly to the issue of generations—that we have to think generationally, but we also have to think not generationally. So we have to think about the fact that, for instance, whether it's a um, you know immigration or gender issues, there are generational differences, and there are ways in which it affects generations differently. At the same time. There has to be a global way to think about why it matters, right? Why does sexual discrimination matter? Why does immigration matter? But I think again, and I think especially in the U.S., we are so invested in generations. Oh, you know, these young people, or um, or whom does it benefit? It's it's a peculiar way of, and we don't think about would we call it the social contract? I don't know. You know, we don't think about the sociality of change, right, that, and this is why I think we were, and this wasn't just in the US, of course, I mean, Sweden was doing this as well, but we were basically saying, well, if old people die, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Uh, so I think in some ways it's it's a worldwide issue too. Suddenly we were hearing everywhere across the world, even in India, which pretends to revere its aged. Um, even in India, perhaps especially in India, where the old are actually very much more disposable than they are here, even, which is pretty shocking. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, okay, I, I'm I'm going to wind it down now, but yeah, I, I think I've, I've I've been fairly easy on you so far, so we're we're going to go out with a tough question. Um, your readers you know, um, uh, especially your readers in Evergreen, but your readers in general, they're they're familiar with a lot of things you don't like. Ronan Farrow, we've learned about today. Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, your sadness when when we see her healthy and contagion. You know, Hannah Gatsby, your favorite comedian in the whole world. The, The Indigo Girls, lesbian comedy in general, Pete Buttigieg, you know, Governor Andrew Cuomo, who has saved the world from the coronavirus pandemic. You know, all these people that you don't like, but one person you do like, that I don't understand why. And I want you to tell me, what is it it about Jason Momoa? Uh,
0: So first of all, I will say, I've actually come around on the Indigo Girls and I realize I like them very
1: much. Those first two albums are really good.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. Wonderful stuff, wonderful heavy stuff. Yeah, I mean, not heavy, but you know, really interesting stuff, exactly. Jason Momoa, have you not seen him? Have you not? Seen any pictures of him,
1: Dale? I've seen Jason Momoa in Baywatch. I've seen Jason Momoa as Cal Drogo. Um, I tried to. I tried to watch Aquaman, but it's just impossible. You know. uh, Uh. uh, You know, I I don't really have anything against Jason Momoa um, uh, at at all. I just I, I don't summon the enthusiasm that you do, and I'm curious.
0: Dale, it is a much deeper response than you might have expected. Uh So I wrote this piece about Jason Momoa and the queer ideals of friendship, Mm -hmm. and one of the reasons I think I got really attracted to Jason Momoa. Okay, the first reason is that if the aliens were to come, right
1: now you two are rocking the same hair. (laughs) Well, yes, thank you.
0: Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That is the highest compliment anyone could pay me, seriously. But one of the big, of course, is that, you know, I've always said about Jason Momoa that if the aliens were to come to Earth and say, we're going to scorch the hell out of you and just obliterate your entire planet, show us what you've done if you want redemption, we would just have to wheel him out and then say, oh, okay, that's fine. That's good. You're good. You're good for another 100 million years. We'll come back soon, you know? So he's just an embodiment of human perfection.
1: Okay. That's
0: There is that for me. I, mean, I just find him extraordinarily beautiful. I mean, I try. Every now and then, I look at a photo of him, not in his Baywatch years, where he was just a twink without chest hair. I mean, that was not at all an interesting look. But I think the other reason, to be perfectly honest, is that, I was attracted to him and then i sort of looked around as i do i'm a very stalky person so when i'm interested in somebody i really hunt out i i I'm, I'm a damn good researcher as well so i find out shit that no one might ever know but one thing that interested me and most of the information about him is of course in the public domain is his is that he's so he also embodies a very particularly sort of interesting new contemporary way of living, which is to say, you know, his wife is uh, Lisa Bonet. She was married to Lenny Kravitz. She has, you know, a daughter, Zoe Kravitz by him. And they're all friends. And Momoa has this whole pack of friends who have all these complicated friendships of their own. And I found that, and I'm not at all in, mind you, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not cynical about celebrity coverage or anything like that. But there's a large part of it that's also very real in some ways you know you have this conglomeration of people who are sort of married and not married and have you know roots of children with each other and each other's partners and so i found that actually i think in some ways i would not be as attracted as i am to momo if it were not for that accompanying him and i found it wonderful that you know the 21st century we have this man who sort of is racially, you know, not white and not, you know, he's, he's, he's not completely white. He's not an embodiment of whiteness, which I think was in his Baywatch years, oddly enough, interestingly, but also represents a certain kind of filial configuration. And also, more importantly, as I wrote in my piece, it sort of spoke to the issues around friendship that I've thought about for a very long time. Like, friendship really matters to me <clears throat> because as I'm sure many people realize other than my, you know, two dead cats and my one dead dog, you know, I don't have chosen not to have children. I've chosen not to be in very conventional filials, you know, um, um, configurations slash settings and so on. I found that enchanting and amazing and interesting. And I guess at the end of the day, he's just, man, come on, he's just fucking
1: gorgeous. (laughs) And on that note, Yasmin, thank you for being with us.
0: It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.